0: Now, we are in our five solas series, which is, you know, a little bit of a different series than what we've done before. We felt that this was extremely important uh, because it was so important during the time of the Reformation in 1517. As uh, you saw an aspect of Christianity becoming distorted, perverted, and these men speaking up, uh, and some at the very cost of their life, to show the... Uh, the essentials of the faith and what needs to be understood in order to live a holy life and moreover to be saved, to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to really jump in today and look at this and see why this, these different solas are so important. Because as we've seen, you've heard about sola scriptura, you've heard about sola fide, sola gracia. We've heard about these different solas. And today's is on the sole deo Gloria. Now, I wanted to, uh, before we jumped into this message, I wanted to share a quote with you. There are quotes that really mean a lot to us, that inspire us to think differently. And here's a quote today that I wanted to share with you because it's meant so much to me because it's so, um, such a response or an, it's so antithetical to what we see going on in our world today. And it's by a guy named Count von Zinzendorf. Not a game, not, it's got a pretty full name there. But this guy was a Christian convert in the 1700s, and he became a leader in what was known as the Moravian Church in Germany. And he said this to these some prospective missionaries. He said, The missionary must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor, no report of fame. Like the cab horses in London, the count said, he must wear blinkers and be blind to every danger and danger. Every danger and to every snare and conceit, he must be content to suffer, to die, and be forgotten. Now that's been shortened to this: preach the gospel and then die and be forgotten. And that goes flies in the face of our culture today, because all our culture cares about is himself. Um, how many of you know the story, the mytho- mythological story of Narcissus? Anyone ever familiar with that story? The character of Narcissus who, as uh, you see within mythology, that he was one of the most beautiful creatures ever created, and he saw his reflection in, in, uh, in the water. And he so was smitten with himself that he continued to stare at himself To the point where he didn't eat, he didn't do anything else, he just couldn't turn away with how beautiful that he was that he eventually died. And we're seeing a culture that we are living in that are so now we call narcissistic, in love with themselves, in love with their own name, in love with their own image, that the idea of preaching Christ and then dying and be forgotten is completely so far away from anything that our culture boasts and talks about. We're so busy taking pictures of ourselves and promoting ourselves online and caring all about ourselves that we have lost an understanding that it's not about us. It's about God. It's not about who we are. It's about who God is. And as we get into these solas, especially this sola, this sola is the glue upon which all other solas come together. Because we see that God is motivated not for us. We always think that God is about us, that God loves us, that it's about who we are. And yes, God does love us, but it's ultimately about Him and His glory. I mean, think about this. Why were you motivated to get up and come to church today? What made you get out of bed? Was it a desire to see other people? A desire to be entertained, a desire to sing. Uh, maybe you felt guilty. Maybe you felt something you bad you did and you want to make it right. Maybe it's simply fear of God. Maybe you want to hear the word of God preached. You want to know some more. We all have different motivations on why we do different things. Why is God motivated to do what he does? You ever ask yourself that? We are so good, we're, but we're like little children in that we, we just think about ourselves and what we get and what we have then we don't think about who God is. Why is God motivated to do what he does? He does it for the glory of his name. And that's why we talk about sola fide, sola gracia, sola Christus. Everything that God does is not about us. It's about him. Because he wants to show himself to us because he knows that's what is best for us. He is what is best for us. And we're going to get into this. I know it sounds pretty complex right now. But today, I want us to really think about living for God's glory. What is that? And not living for ourselves. What is that? Because we have a wrong motivation. We live for self and our own glory rather than the glory of God. There are two two competing glories in the world, man's glory and God's. And today, we're going to learn about God's glory, what it is, why it's important for us to live for it. But before we do that, let's take a moment to pray to ask God by his spirit to speak to us about who he is. Our gracious God, Lord, we do come into your presence knowing that you are the Holy One. That you are all powerful. You know all things. You know our hearts. And Lord, if we were to just simply get a glimpse of who you are and the purity of your glory, Lord, we'd be destroyed because you are so awesome. Lord, we often forget how great you are. We, make your, we, we imagine you as just a little bit better than us. But the fact of the matter is, you are so far above us and beyond us, yet you still love us, you still care for us. But Lord remind us today who you are in all of your glory, that we might see you and know you and live our life truthfully in response to that knowledge, in fear and in trembling and in honor and, and thankfulness for what you've done in our lives. So, Lord, speak to us, draw us near to yourself, that we might enjoy you and behold you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. And I chose this verse because I believe it's such a summation. As Paul was mentioning, for who has known the mind of the Lord? This passage starts off in verse 34 or who has been his counselor, or who has, been, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, as verse 34 and 35 says. But verse 36 really brings it out. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now I want to talk for a moment, what is glory? What is it when we hear that term glory? And it's throughout the entirety of Scripture. It talks about the glory of God. The glory of God. We sang about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Well, the word glory comes from the Greek word doxa. And what that means is it's, it comes from the Greek verb dokeo, and it means exercising personal opinion that determines value. In other words, everything that we have is from him. Every uh, thought, I mean, it's about his glory. We are glorifying him. We are to give him glory forever. And what does it mean to give God Glory. It means conveying God's infinite, intrinsic, means to He is, His essence, and giving that which belongs solely to God. Now, let me, let me try to draw this out a little bit. And before we go any further, I'd like us to have a definition. I want us to really try to define or develop a definition, a working definition of God's glory. And there's so many different thoughts about His glory. Uh, John Piper says that God's glory is the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. And if I were to define that, radiance of his manifold means that there are several, infinitely means going on forever, and his valuable perfections, it's the essence of who he is. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. As one theologian said it, he said, The glory of God is the weight of the majestic goodness of who God is and the resulting name or reputation that he gains from his revelation of himself as creator, sustainer, judge, and redeemer. Perfect in justice, mercy, loving kindness, and truth. Thomas, scholar Thomas Schreiner put it this way, The glory of the Lord is the supremacy of God in everything. I've chosen this short definition for you. It's the manifest display of who God is. It is the manifest display of who God is. So God manifests himself in these several different ways. In the Old Testament, God showed his glory in a pillar of cloud that could be seen in the day. And at night, it was a pillar of fire. Sometimes it was like a cloud coming in and filling the Jewish temple that the people would have to leave because it was his, his active presence coming in and they could see it and feel it. And they had to get away from it because it was so powerful. Or his glory, that pillar of cloud or fire going around the top of Mount Sinai where the people, they saw it, it shook, it shook them. Or you see Nadab and Abihu in, in the book of Leviticus where they come into the temple offer, giving this offering, but it's called unauthorized fire. They were doing a sacrifice in a way that God hadn't prescribed. And the glory of the Lord fills it, and they are struck dead at that moment in time. It's his awesome, powerful, manifest presence, especially within the Old Testament, but we see it a little bit differently in the New but we have this working definition, and we're going to play off of that. It is a manifest display of who God is. And it's based upon who he is. He is different than each one of us. He is, he is the most beautiful creature in the world. Have you ever seen something so beautiful that it just causes you to stop and go, wow. Just the other day, I was on my browser. And I was trying to find a new background, kind of like a new wallpaper from my browser. And I was fl- flipping through all the different themes. And I came across this one picture and I went, oh, that's just awesome. And it was this picture of this tree. And then the tree had had on one side of it like stars and the other one had the sun. And it's just this beautiful, glorious picture. And I thought, man, that's beautiful. And I said, is there any more? And I saw some with the sun setting behind it and all the different shades of the sun and all these different uh, the way that the colors were coming upon the trees and how they blow. Or you see pictures of uh, in autumn when you see the different trees turn and change and different things. You, I mean, there's so many different pictures. Some that you go out into uh, some of the tropical climates and you see just how clear the water is. And you can see right through it and how beautiful all of that is. And you stop and go, wow, that's beautiful. But you know what the, the big part of it is? Is that God is greater than any of that. God is the most beautiful being. He is the most uh, unique being in the entire universe. He is perfect. He is holy, completely unique, different than any other creature in the universe. He knows all things. He is completely wise. He is completely just. He is wrathful. He is also the very personification, personification or essence of love. Do you know that? I mean, I don't think we can even begin to fathom that. God is love. Love is not God. God is love, though. And what does that mean? God is love? God is love. It means that God exists in a relationship of love. So you can't have love unless you have a relationship. I can't love something unless I have something to love, someone to love. So God, before anything was ever created is love, meaning that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is existing eternally in a relationship with love. God is. He is great. He is awesome. He is beyond our understanding. And so to say that his glory, it is the understanding of his extrinsic or his outward glory and his inward glory of who he is just by his very nature. He has shown himself to be glorious. He is awe-inspiring we have lost our understanding of awe. I mean, when's the last time you were in awe of something? Think about it. Was it a song that was sung that you sat there and you just closed your eyes because it was so beautiful and you could feel chills go over your body? Where you saw a photo or maybe it was just a picture going on around you or maybe it was something someone said to you and you experienced this moment of awe? That's, that's who God is all the time, is that he's always inspiring Awe and wonder that's why people fall down and worship Him. He is so much greater. But what we have done today is we have traded that image of God for a very ordinary one. And we've tried to make God tamed, where he's this cosmic father, this big beard that's slightly aloof and forgetful. We forget that he's actively there. He's holy, burning brightly. I mean, if you were to experience his presence in his place, you would have no idea. I mean, we would fall down. You wouldn't slap him a high five or give him a fist bump. You would fall down on your face. There's a reason why angels, I mean, and we have this weird preoccupation with angels in our culture today. People want to talk about angels and how great angels are. You know, it's great, but the angels fall down and worship him. They fall down. And give him all glory. And even then, God has angels surrounding his very presence with six wings, the seraphim. They have, with two wings they fly, with two wings their eyes are covered because they cannot even glance upon his presence. And with two wings uh, on their feet. It's this amazing picture of these beings, angelic, holy beings. And we have no idea of how powerful he is. I mean, again, if he were to be here right now, manifestly, what would you do? I mean, you're talking about a being that is so powerful that he holds the very breath, I mean, your very life in his hand. So we talk about God's glory. If we're going to understand this, we have to have this working definition. It's the manifest display of who he is. I want to talk just for a moment. I've talked about it slightly already. I'd like us to discover some of the different manifestations and how God has shown His glory throughout time and the earth. And I'm, I'm, I mean, there are many different ones. I just want to focus on three. The first one is in creation itself. In creation itself, Psalm nineteen one through six says it this way: "The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge." There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. I mean, think about that. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is embedded with his wonders. As I was preaching at Silver Birch Ranch, uh, one day we decided to have chapel outside. And there's this small amphitheater, it's right on the lake. And as people were sitting there, I'm looking up at all these various pine trees, and you could just see the sun, and you could see the breeze going across the water. And God made that. Seriously, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. How could you believe that this just came to be? That it just showed up and evolved. Or or I look at the my my children and seeing how they, when we found out we were pregnant, and watching this child through each ultrasound grow, and we read about the progression of it, and seeing how the eyes would be formed, and then the heartbeat with all the different chambers that would be seen. And you could see just how the, the child was developing and growing over time, and this just evolved? And this just happened randomly? It just occurred one day that decided, well, this is advantageous to me to grow fingers. I and mean, If that's the case, if evolution were true, moms would have five arms. It'd be advantageous. But we see that it is embedded over all creation. And, and you look at the various mountains. Go out to Colorado and see the Rockies and how great they are. I remember I grew up in the plains. And my senior year, we ended up going out to go see the mountains for the first times in our lives. And we, we went in a Ford Festiva. Three guys loaded up with MREs, and you know, those ready-to-eat meals that they have in the military, and books. We were going to go read. We were total geeks. And we see mountains. And we pull out and we start taking pictures of mountains problem is, is we're like 25 miles away. <laughs> and they and, and were so beautiful. You could see just the white caps and, and how they were so just uh, majestic and glorious. And the closer we got, the more amazing they were. Or go out to the ocean and see the Pacific or see the Atlantic and, and see all the different treasures that are even in the, in the water and see those, those crabs and, and all those different uh, uh, lobsters and how they're crawling back around in these beautiful fish and, and go into the Arctic and see how those wonderful, beautiful polar bears and all those, the ice that's all around, the icebergs, and it's so glorious. Or, or go to the different parts of Europe and see how the rolling meadows or, or going to see the, the vineyards and all of these different things over all of creation. And God made it all to display the glory of his name. That's what he did. He displayed it across all of creation. Even the furthest heavens declare the glory of God. And you go out into space, and the, the Russian cosmonaut who went into space and for the first time said that God wasn't there because their understanding of the heavens was very limited. They didn't understand space. And he said their God wasn't there. And as Evie Hill's mother, who was an African American pastor, he said, she just went, he goes, when he went into space, that Russian cosmonaut only went into God's backyard. So much glorious than that. And God made it. God made all the stars. And we see the the images coming back from Hubble telescope and going to explore the different planets and how huge they are. And when you look at our sun, which is a star, by the way, and even a smaller star, according to some estimates, within the universe. And God made it to declare declare the wondrous glory of his name. And that's a minor thing in his sight. Now, do you feel pretty small? To behold how amazing and awesome he really is. And he made it. And if there was any limit to what he made, he'd just say, come forth. And it would be. It's how awesome he is. How glorious he is. And he made all of these different nebula and star systems and all of these different things. All in the universe he made. All of the planets. All of the galaxies he contains in the palm of his hand. All of creation displays or is embedded with the glory of God, the presence of God, that you stop and you look at Him and you say, God made that. And when I hear people say that there is no proof, like Bertrand Russell said, they asked him, uh, he was a big atheist, and they said, Why don't you, be, you know, how come you haven't become a Christian? What if, what if you were to go into the presence of God and He'd say, Why didn't you believe? And He'd say, Not enough proof. The proof is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's embedded in creation. You know, it's also embedded within us, His creatures. It's to be seen in His creatures. Isaiah chapter 43, verse uh, through 6 through 7 says it this way. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now, God is talking to, uh, through Isaiah to the nations. Uh, speaking about Israel here, but it's the next part of the verse that I believe sets it off so clearly. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You want to know why God made you? God made you to to display his glory. But think about man, all the creations of man. I think about my great-grandmother, for example. In her lifetime, she saw the first automobile and us walk on the moon. Think about all this. I I remember reading this uh, uh, science article from the 1940s that they were talking about what the future of technology would be like. And they said that computers will be so small they'll be able to fit in one city block as I look at my cell phone. And God made man who could make this stuff. I mean, think about this. I'm amazed at even television television. And when I go in and I look at a TV and they have 1080, IP or PI, whatever all the different things are, I don't even know it anymore. I've become my grandfather. I used to program my grandfather's VCR. I thought that was modern at the time. Now my three-year-old knows better than I do. But all of these different things that we see in television and how our images are, can be taken and go all throughout the planet or how we can take our phone and be live for everyone to see. I can go on Facebook and go Facebook Live, and I can have people see me in India and Africa and Australia all at the same time. That's amazing. And it's because God made man with the ability to create, with the ability to think, with the ability to do, to love, to create all of these different things. And who do we glory? We glory man, but it's God who made man to be able to do these things. Man is to be the one who reflects back to God his glory. Why did he make us so we'd make much of ourselves? So we'd make peace signs with our phones? No. It's not about us, it's about him. God made us for his glory. We are to be a reflection of his glory, to display his glory the presence of God. People should see God in us, and how he made us. But God's glory is to be supremely seen in his Christ, in his Christ, in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3 through 6 puts it this way, and even if our gospel is veiled, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, Uh, Meaning that there are those who don't understand. It's veiled to those who are perishing. Those who don't know who Jesus is. They can't embrace. They can't see it. They're blinded. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're blind. They're blind. People that say are, are, are atheists, they're blind. They've been blinded by the evil one. They can't see the glory of God. They're blinded by their own ignorance and stupidity. In their case, the God of this world is not referring to our God, it's referring to the devil, who is, the, who is in essence the ruler of this world now, and his kingdom is shaking, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the one who displays the very glory of God. And we get a glimpse of this, by the way, on the Mount of Transfiguration where just for a moment you get to see Jesus and who he really is. He shines through. He can't hold him anymore. He can't get through. The, he, he, uh, it, it, it comes out. He can't hide it, the, who he is. I watched a TV show the other day uh, it was a, and I never watched the show, but it came up. It was Celebrity Undercover, something along that line. It was Darius Rucker. Darius Rucker, I don't know if you've seen this or not. Darius Rucker used to be of Hootie the Blowfish. Uh, he's a country music star now, and uh, he went in disguise, and he went around to these different places to find these different musical talents, and he'd get up and he'd play, and he'd play terribly. <laughs> And people are like, oh, they're, he's bad. And, 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 but he met these people, got to know their stories. And, and they think these cameras are there because he's going on a show where he's competing uh, in, in a contest. And, and actually, they get asked to be judges. And so they show up. He meets these three different artists that he thought were really impressive. And then he uh, brings them in. And they're to judge him to see if he's any good. And they knew he, they'd heard him play. He played really bad. And so he gets up, and he's got this disguise on. And he plays a couple of chords and he messes up and his voice cracks and they all kind of look at this. And he stops and then he starts really playing. And then they start going, whoa, this guy's good. What happened? It couldn't, he couldn't hide it any longer. It just his talent came through. And here's what we're saying is, is that God's glory just start, finally came through Christ. He couldn't hide it anymore. It displayed for all of them to see. And they were overwhelmed as smoke just came all around and fog filled them on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they saw him for all who he is. Couldn't hide it any longer. And that's why Peter was so freaked out. He's like, hey, he wanted to hold on to the experience. He didn't know what was going on. It was so amazing. We see it supremely in his Christ. So the glory of God finds its true reality and expression. Now, why is all this important? Why is it important to talk about this? Well, we need to understand this because, uh, and, and it helps if we dwell on our present situation for a moment. And We need to dwell in our present situation I have never seen a culture become so more enamored with itself and forget God in the process and have no idea how close the judgment of God is on their lives. We have done so well at busying ourselves and letting wicked people around us promote their wickedness that we have forgotten really who God is, and we think because nothing's happened to them yet, nothing's going to happen to us, and we can go on our merry way. So we, we have to understand we're pretty desperate, because here's, here's the real issue that we have, is that we want glory for ourselves, and God will not share his glory with another. You know, that was the big issue in Genesis chapter 11 in the the Tower of Babel. All the people came together. They wanted to make a name for themselves and promote their own glory. And God brought it down where they were confused in their language. They couldn't work together because they were trying to find their own glory. You see in Isaiah chapter forty two where God says it very clearly, I am the Lord, that is my name, I my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I He can't give it. He doesn't want to, and he won't, but he can't, because He, he can't take have others take glory for something He Himself is and does. And it's not bad in God. He will not let others take glory because it, it would be a lie. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I give to no other, no my praise to carve idols. See, here's the reality. We have treated God improperly. We don't treat God the way he deserves. It's not a wonder that he doesn't destroy us himself right now. Even in our salvation, we believe that we have added to or we decided for God. We're the ones that make the choice. We're the masters of our fate, our own destiny. You know, that's the reason why he gives us Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. This is not your own doing. It's the very gift of God. He gave it to you, not a result of any works, so that you can't boast. So people are like, well, I decided. It's a total gift of grace. You couldn't do anything unless he would have allowed you to do it. We treat God improperly. And we have taken, how have we treated God improperly? Because we've taken credit foolishly or we've just forgotten them altogether. We take credit foolishly. And that leads to a terrifying response from God. Acts chapter 12, verse 20, puts it this way. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. He was the ruler of the time. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And here's the real part. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, this is the voice of a god, not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. God will not share his glory with another. He will not share his glory with an error. That leads to a terrifying response. If you try to get glory for yourself, it will end disastrously. Knowing the zeal that God has for his glory, then we have to make uh, we have to figure out how and determine our participation. How do we respond to this? What do we do with this? How do we respond to God's glory? What does this doctrine mean for us? Several things. To respond to God's glory properly involves us recognizing God for who he is. Recognizing God for who he is. You know, it's amazing in that Darius Rucker example, after he gets done performing, he comes out without his disguise on and these people now treat him very differently because now he means something. Suddenly, they see him for all of his fame all of his fortune, and now that he is going to do something for them, and now they're afraid, and in all, I mean, think about that. Think about that. I mean, think about that. You, you, you don't know what you're encountering with, what, you, what you're doing, and, and you're coming into the very presence of Almighty God. If you recognize God for who he is, how do you respond? I mean, I mean the other night, we got a report, uh, we got a text, uh, last night, that said there had been a shooting or there was a situation that was going on uh, just in the neighborhood, not too far from here. And so it made us lock our doors. And, and I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you're in your house and you hear something in the next room and suddenly all the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you suddenly, you realize there's something there that you don't know or don't understand. It's much bigger than yourself. I mean, think about that with God multiplied infinitely. You're coming to the very presence of him who contains life and meaning and everything about who you are talk about power. What do you do? How do you respond to God for who he is? How do we respond to that? You know, in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3, these angels that I referred to early, the seraphim, how they respond? They say, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts; the whole earth is full of his glory." And what does Isaiah say after he sees this vision of God high and lifted up? He says, "Woe is me." For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let me tell you this. Right now, Creation groans and it waits for the day where God's glory will ultimately be revealed and everything that we know about this earth will go away. Everything that you know about the internet, everything that you know, all the videos, selfies, all that garbage is going to be gone in a moment, forgotten. And the only thing that's going to be left is God himself and all of his power and his glory. And you will remember all of the different things that you heard and how you didn't respond to and how you lived so foolishly. That's what we will do for those that turn their back on God. How are you going to respond? Do you see him in all of his glory? I am so tired of seeing some of these preachers get up and preach this little feminine God who just has love and no wrath. I'm so tired. This is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a tattooed fire guy who shows up to destroy sin. And he is going to judge it. And those people will not enter into glory. That these people who are sin that we just try to pacify and sound, it's okay, are going to burn up. That should put fear in you. I don't know what else to do to wake people up to see what's going on. I shudder when I read the Word of God and I see how people's lives are going on in all of their sin and they don't care. I hurt for them because they're walking to their doom. God will not be mocked. That what a person sows, they will reap, and he will bring it all in the end, in his time, in ways that we don't understand. And we have to start treating God as God. I mean, what else do you do? He's this cosmic friend, counselor, this moral therapeutic deity that everybody gets in to see? Sorry, that's not how it works. It says that those are going to stand outside of the gates and say, Lord, did we not? And he says, I do not know you. I don't know you. You didn't follow. You didn't give your life. You didn't do it. I don't know you. You lived for your glory, yourself. You didn't look to me. You didn't trust me. You went through the motions. And now eternity is going to reveal your life for all it is. And I hurt because I tried to show myself to you and you rejected it. That's what it's like. Can we get a picture of God in all of his fullness? Recognizing God for who he is and realize all that he does. I mean, did you know that way before Isaiah, Moses asked to see God in his glory? He actually asked for it. In Exodus 33, chapter 19 for 33, actually Moses said, show me your glory. And then God responds, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. The Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face. For a man shall not sit, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then he says this as he passes by. He declares who he is. Notice that in that passage where he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's amazing. The Lord abounding in love I and mean, realizing all that God has done for us. Realize that. It's not as if God showed up on the scene after we were created to just save humanity. He created humanity. We have to realize all he does. If we're going to participate, we need to, to recognize him for who he is and realize all he does. I like to do that. I mean, think about this. We, we have a tendency to forget. Uh, and right now, like my kids, uh, I have younger children in the home, and I went down in our basement the other day, and it's looked like the toy closet threw up. And I'm looking around all these toys, and I'm like, w- who, who's going to clean this up? I don't know. <laughs> Did you make the mess? Yes. Are you going to clean it up? Mm-hmm. Who's, who do you think does this? Who do you think cleans this up? <laughs> I guess you do. Yeah. Do you think I like to clean this up? Mm. Do you like cleaning it up? No. (laughs) Do you think I like cleaning it up? Mm. No. (laughs) You know all the stuff that we do for you? I I like to, for Mother's Day, I mean, it's Father's Day, but for Mother's Day, I always like to remind our kids everything that mom does. And when you realize, as you grow older, you start realizing what your parent did for you. I mean, as you get older and you, as when you start thinking about God, you realize how much he does for you and how he's treated you. You know, it's the foot footprints poem that we've all heard. Where you, you hear the footprints in the sand. You remember the poem, right? And it says, yeah, there's two footprints that are on the beach too. And, and he's with God and he says, God, when life was tough, he's looking back at his life and he sees two footprints and he sees one. He goes, how come... When life got hard, there was only one set of footprints, like you abandoned me. And he goes, That's when I carried you. That's true, it's a picture. And there's actually a funnier one that. It says, See that right over there? That's where I dragged you. <laughs> realizing all that God does for us. So re- realizing who he I mean, recognizing for who he is and realizing all he does. He's the one that shows us mercy. He's the one that forgives sin. He is the one that controls our lives. So how do we respond to all this? Recognizing God for who he is, realizing what he's done, and running from sin. Running from sin. I like how John Piper put this. He said that sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for the broken cisterns of created things. Let me repeat that. Is the suicidal exchange. Meaning that rather than have God's glory, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take, take this little mud pie over here and I'm going to reject the, the greatest being in the universe Jeremiah put it a little different way he wrote in Jeremiah 2 verse 13 for my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water see if you turn from God you have to turn to something else nature abhors a vacuum even if you say you don't do something that is something And if you reject God, you have to replace him with something else. And here he's saying a hewn cistern is where they would find water. And here, this is the living water. This is good water. This is healthy water. And in that culture at that time, that was huge. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where there's not real healthy water. When I was in India, I got to go see this slum. And I walked up and there's water buffalo in the water that they bathe in, they use the bathroom in, and they drink from. Same water source. For all three of them. And here, this this is the living water that's coming. This is clean water. And here, it's like you're trading that for this this dirty water, this nasty water, this polluted, diseased water. You take God away, and you're going to pursue this. And you're going to get everything that comes with that. We have to run from sin turn away from it because when we sin we're saying we're not, we're not glorifying God we're we're diminishing the glory of God we need to, in order to re- really show who he is we need to live holy lives because we are his image bearers as well and especially those who have come to know Christ and say they are owned and, and are followers of Christ our lives must reflect the God whom we worship now a fourth thing that we can do involves us refusing to compromise refusing to compromise see one of the ways we condemn God's glory is when we try to make sin not sound so bad or if we tolerate sin in our lives. We cannot tolerate sin and we must refuse to compromise with the world. We must resolve to follow Christ no matter what this world or the devil throws out at us. God receives great glory. I've seen so many Christians or so-called believers are attacked for one reason or another and the pressure mounts as you age the arguments become more real and not just theoretical you experience pain you have wants and desires you have what other people have and who don't follow god and you wonder how they can prosper why you seem to be having such a hard time and this refusing the refusing or this opportunity to compromise is ever present and it's perhaps the greatest test i mean think about it christians were faced with the choice of dying or watching their loved ones die or denying their faith Either you're going to be killed, or your spouse is going to be killed, or your children will be killed in front of your face, or you deny Jesus. And it wasn't that bad for most of them. They'd say, here, all you have to do is sprinkle a little incense on the altar, say, Caesar is Lord, and you're good. That's it. No big deal. God will forgive you later. How many of us have done that? See, we we really don't take sin that seriously. God takes that very, very seriously. We have to refuse to compromise. That's why the early church really was amazed and took to heart Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We can see this in the example of a woman named Vibia Perpetua. I've shared this story about Vibia Perpetua and Felicitas before. I won't go into all the details uh, because they're pretty gruesome. You may not know her, but her story was amazing. I mean, I I get into some of it. She was 22-year-old mother of an infant son. She was martyred for her faith in Carthage, Africa, in the year 202 or 203. She was a convert to Christianity, and she, along with several other converts, such as brand-new mom Felicitas, were arrested, all because they refused to perform a sacrifice to the emperor of the gods. Again, just a little incense, and that's it. In fact, her father did everything in his power to get her to deny Christ and make a sacrifice, but she continually refused. He implored her to do it for herself, for him, how he raised her, and lastly, for her infant son, who's going to take care of him. But she would not. She refused to deny Christ and was condemned to death in the arena with wild beasts. And she refused to wear the priestess garments of Ceres, which is a pagan god that they all would wear when they would be marched in. And so they were walked into the arena and stripped naked. Even the bloodthirsty crowd could not take this because it could be easily seen that her and Felicitas had just given birth. The crowd was horrified. So the women were brought back and clothed in tunics. Then they were trampled by a mad cow. She was then run through with a sword, but she still wasn't dead. Finally, she took the gladiator's hand and put it to her throat for him to kill her. Now, why is her story being told? Because of her faith. She refused to compromise. And Christ is seen as precious, is glorified because of it. The only reason we know that story is because she held on to Christ. And there are so many stories of those martyrs whose their story has not yet been told, but will be in eternity. for those that saw Christ as more precious than their life and refused to give in to sin even for a moment. Now look at your life in response to that. Can Christ be seen as precious? In your life, in the choices that you make, is he seen as precious? Are you willing to compromise? So we see, show God's glory by refusing to compromise. And we also, when we're relying on his promises, when we rely on his promises, God is glorified. And when we live according to those promises, when we hold on to God's promises, that, and when we go through difficult times and we cling to that, when, knowing that he will reward us or vindicate us, we show that our faith is real and that God is real. And that makes people give glory to God. In Numbers 14, the nation of Israel had rebelled against the Lord and God had enough and was going to destroy them and build up a greater nation from Moses. And this is how Moses responds in Numbers 14, 13 through 19. He says, But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. Because see, what, remember what happened. God was so frustrated with Israel, he's going to destroy them. And he looks at Moses and says, I'm going to build a nation greater than this one from you. And now Moses goes, please, no. Then the Egyptians are going to hear about it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell all the inhabitants of the land. Because they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud, your glory stands over them and goes before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire. Again, glory by night. Because remember, that's how he would manifest himself in the Old Testament. The pillar of cloud in the daytime and the pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame, again, glory, they've heard of your glory, how awesome you are will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. And he's calling back to God. He says, you made a promise. You promised God, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, my Father who is in heaven. not sure where that part comes from, but he says, forgiven this people from Egypt until now. But he's clinging to God's promise and God receives glory by him clinging to that promise. When we cling to the promises of God when we call back to him his promises and, and tell them to him, God receives glory because he is showing that he will vindicate himself that he will come through now another way of participating in God's glory or glorifying him involves us repenting of sin <clears throat> repenting of sin And we have a couple more But repenting of sin, holding on to sin does nothing except hasten and increase God's judgment of us, which he also gets glory for, by the way. But here he is, us repenting of our sin is our admission that we are wrong and God is right, which vindicates him and shows that he is true. Remember, God's word says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when you admit that, that you've fallen short of the glory, God gets glory because he's, you're agreeing with his statement and he's shown to be proven to be true. And the next thing we need to make sure of is that we are resolving to find our satisfaction in him. We don't talk about that very often. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him John Piper said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, to find our happiness in him. When people see how satisfied you are in God, people want to go, who is it? Why are you so happy? Why are you so joyous? Why are you so satisfied? What is with your life? It's God receives glory because you found your satisfaction in God. Jonathan Edwards wrote 70 resolutions that he lived by he was a puritan in the 18th century he was a pastor uh, amazing scholar theologian philosopher and he wrote these resolutions and he did live by them and his first resolution was this he says resolved that i will do whatsoever to be most to god's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for good and and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Let me translate this into modern language. I resolve to live for God and find my joy in God, no matter what happens, no matter what's going on around me, so that if I do this, other people will be blessed. Because if I am finding my satisfaction in God, and I'm dedicating to myself to finding my satisfaction in God, other people will see and they will be encouraged and they too will find satisfaction in God because God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And then lastly, God is most glorified in us when we are reflecting back to him what he means to us. That's where our obedience comes in. Actually, that can summarize all of these different points. When you live your life Before the audience of one, when you forsake sin, when you turn away from entertainment that is immoral or impure, when you are being obedient, when you are giving of your time, your talents, your treasures, when you're telling other people about who he is, when you're finding your satisfaction in him, when you're doing your job for the glory of God, all of these different things. If you're loving your spouse the way Christ loved the church, or when you're being submissive in the role in which God has you, whatever it might be, you are reflecting back to God. You are a mirror. We are all mirrors that are to be reflecting of God. And when we're finding our satisfaction to God, we are reflecting back to him what he means to us. What does your life say about what God means to you? What does your life say? What about your entertainment choices? How you spend your money? How you engage in different relationships? The conversations that you have? The jokes that you tell? The shows that you watch? The websites that you visit? the images that you scroll through? Does your life reflect back to God what he means to you? God has called us to live for his glory, to preach Christ, to die and be forgotten so that God's glory might be remembered. And when we find his glory, we find our satisfaction in him. Remember Jim Elliott's quote, uh, the martyred missionary, he said, he who is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. See, what you give up is self. What you gain is a precious Savior and eternity in his presence where you find your true self forevermore. Let's close our message with a word of prayer. Lord, our God, as the hymn writer said, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands has made, Lord, you are precious to us, not just as the creator God, but as the God who showed the depth of his love by sending his son forth to die on the cross for our sins that you sent us the precious name, the most precious gift heaven had to offer. And that was yourself in Jesus. Lord, we cannot begin to understand or fathom the greatness of your glory and how this relate to all of the different souls. Lord, it's the goal, the glue that sticks them all together, knowing that everything that has been done in our salvation for our benefit by faith in Christ, through grace in Christ, through Christ himself and through the word of God is so that your name might receive glory, that people might turn to you and begin to live for you and find their joy in you and reflect back to you what you mean to us. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us how we have dimmed the glory of God or how we have failed to live for your glory. Lord, I always feel that words can never convey what's in my heart. Lord, we love you. And we seek to find our joy and satisfaction in you and help us to find victory in you so that other people might share in glory, the glory of knowing you, participating in who you are. So Lord, touch us, grow us, use us, and help us to truly reflect back to you what you mean to us. We pray you bless us, grow us, and use us. In Jesus' name, amen.